1990, there was a movie that came out, sort of a psychological thriller of sorts, called Misery. And in this movie, a man, as he was traveling along in his car, encountered a blizzard, got into a car accident, and was knocked unconscious, only to wake up in the home of a nurse by the name of Annie, who supposedly had found him and rescued him and was nursing him back to health. Well, as the movie moves along, it's discovered that Annie is actually one of his fans. She loves his romance novels, and she finds out that he has in his possession a manuscript for a novel that he has not yet published, and he agrees to let her read it. She reads it and is furious with the storyline and demands that he changes it, and this movie goes along. You can all go home and watch it this afternoon, but the movie goes along, and this woman, who otherwise is sort of infatuated with this writer, becomes very abusive, and she breaks his legs again in order to keep him in her possession until she change, he changes the novel suitable to her tastes. Now, all of us would agree that nurturing someone back to health and at the same time breaking their legs in order to get what you want from them is not true love. It's a perverse kind of love. We'd all agree that keeping someone enslaved, keeping someone as your captive, abusing them, misusing them, is not loving or benevolent at all, but, in, but instead is, is a very wicked act. Love doesn't enslave. Love frees the other to operate within the protective boundaries of a true relationship, whatever that relationship might be. And in the same way, the passage we're going to look at today is a passage that helps us to be reminded about how God operates in our lives in salvation. The gospel, you see, frees us from sin and from the effects of sin in order to bring us into a relationship with God that is marked by grace. Unfortunately, many people think, and they're resistant to surrendering to God for this reason, that, that God is a God that's some sort of a cosmic killjoy. That he, he kind of wants us in his presence. He wants us to surrender ourselves to him so that he can abuse us. So that he can enslave us. And so you'll hear people say things like, well, I don't want to be a Christian because there's too many rules attached. I, 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 these Christians, I mean, there's endless rules. There's no freedom. There's no, there's no liberty in, in Christianity. But the opposite is actually true. When we enter into relationship with God and we're forgiven of our sins, we are literally liberated from the power of sin over our lives. And any laws that God puts into place to govern our relationship with him are always beneficial. They're protective. They protect the union. They're not intended to smother us, but they're intended to maintain the unity and the liberty and the nature of the relationship that God has established with us through his grace. And so we can say that the gospel has freed you from the burden of performance in order to walk in love. This is a critical message for us to consider. The gospel has freed you from the burden of performance. If you understand what God has actually accomplished, you no longer have to perform for God in order to appease his wrath. There is a place for serving God. We'll get to that. 
But we no longer have to perform for God in order to walk in love, which is, aside from loving God, the ultimate expression of a transformed life is to love others as we love ourselves. So prior to this passage, we're going to enter back into Galatians in chapter 5 and study verses 1 to 15, by the way. Paul had previously argued along theological lines, helping them to understand what Jesus Christ had accomplished, that no human being can be freed from the power or penalty of sin through human effort. Nobody can. So if you were to write down in a long list all the laws and commandments of God and seek to go down the list and obey, obey all of them, that would not be sufficient for you to enter into God's eternal kingdom. Because inevitably, in thought, word, or deed, you'd break one or five or ten, or more likely at some point in time, all of them. So works of the law, good deeds, if you will, are insufficient to free you from slavery and to release you to love others as God has loved you. Paul argues along theological lines that that's factual. Then he argues along historical lines. So many of the people that he was speaking with had Jewish backgrounds, or at least were listening to Jewish preachers that had come. And many of them were falsely teaching that, well, Abraham was justified by works of a law, so you need to be justified by works of a law. Abraham was circumcised as a sign seal, sign and seal of his participation in the old covenant, so you need to have the same ritual performed on you. Well, Paul says historically that's not true. Abraham believed God, put faith in God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. So we have his theological arguments, we have his historical arguments, and now Paul provides us with some very practical arguments. If you surrender, he argues, to the law, to deeds, to good works, you say, okay, I'm going to put myself under the law. I'm going to perform good works in order to be made right with God. Your ability to love others as God has loved you is reduced virtually to zero. And what you actually end up doing is re-enslaving yourself to your own endless efforts to save yourself. Why is God's love so amazing? Because it's undeserved. You don't work for it. You didn't earn it. And so in the same way, when we love others, which is the ultimate manifestation of a transformed life, if we're loving others for what we can get, or we're loving others because we're trying to get brownie points with God, we're not really loving others. So your capacity to love others selflessly is directly connected to your ability to understand that God saved you apart from you. That's the connection there between, between these two concepts. God's undeserved love motivates us to exercise and to extend undeserved love to others. This is why Christians are called to forgive and to love the unlovable. And how is it that we even have that capacity? Because God's done that for us. And if he hasn't done that for us and we instead earned our salvation, then, then our love, the love that God has for us is earned. Is that not accurate? If we earned our salvation, then God's love has been earned. 
So then if I'm going to love you, you have to earn love from me. And that's not love. So there's a connection between the two. Here's how he starts in, in Galatians chapter 5, verse 1. And it's very melodic. You could write songs based upon this verse. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. Kind of rhymes, too, especially in English here. He's freed us, why? From the power and penalty of sin in order to set us free. And if you follow along in the text, we're not there yet, but I'll tip you off to it. It's freedom that's been given to us to love God and love others. So he's freed us from the power and penalty of sin, not yet from the presence of sin. We're still waiting for that. But the power of sin and the penalty of sin, we've been freed from that. And so we've been freed, we've been released to love others and live out the liberties that God has given to us through Christ. What have we been freed from? Well, the burden of performance. The most exhausting life is the religious life outside of Christ. Where you're just desperately trying to remember all the rules, say the right prayers, attend the right services, just hoping beyond hope that God or the gods will somehow accept you. There's a great burden to trying to perform in order to get God's love and grace. When you go on your first date, there's some performance that is necessary for that date to be successful. You got to put on your best face. You got to you know, open the door. You got to be kind. You ask questions. You try to figure out what that person's like, see if you're compatible. And that might go on for a little while, but when you're in marriage, you're in a covenant now. And when you love your spouse, your motive is not to try, to try to keep them because you're in a permanent covenant. Why do you love your spouse after you've said, I do? Why are you kind and gracious and forgiving? And why do you serve the other? Because the nature of the relationship demands it. And because you want to love the other person in that way. But imagine being in a relationship with God that wasn't covenantal, where we, he loves us one day and doesn't love us the next. And his love is contingent upon our performance. And one day we obeyed as many of the commands as we could think about. The next day we forgot. So we're not sure if he's abandoned us. Or what if our death happens to come on a day when we're a little bit disobedient? Like what an exhausting life to live. But that's, that's what false religion teaches us. So you got to perform for God's love. You have to earn it. And then you have to retain it as well by being a good little boy or girl. What an exhausting way to live. Feels like you're habitually in a dating relationship. But when you're in a covenantal relationship, you both agreed to be true to the other till death parts you. And God has agreed in our salvation to be true to us until and even after we enter into his eternal kingdom. So we're freed from what? The burden of performance. We're freed to what? The pursuit of his presence. So once we become Christians, we're now pursuing the presence of God in our lives. We read the Bible and we study the Bible because we want God to speak to us. We pray because we want to speak to God. We extricate ourselves from busyness. We fast. We practice solitude, not so that we're lonely, 
but so we can just be with the Lord and be undistracted in our relationship with him. In prayer, we call upon God to manifest himself in this world, to bring about change in our lives and in the lives of others. And the cool thing about God is God is, as the psalmist said in Psalm 46.1, God is our ever-present help. He's always available. He's never busy. If you feel distant from God, whose fault is it? Your fault. If someone tells you God has abandoned you or you believe in your own mind, God has abandoned you, is that a truism or a falsehood? It's a falsehood. We can walk away from God, but God doesn't walk away from us. God is our ever-present help in all times of struggle. So we're in pursuit of that as Christians. We want to flesh out the fullness of our relationship with him. The Galatian church needed to be reminded of this, not to look back, not to return to these, this falsehood that you can somehow work your way into God's good books and earn his love. He argues from history, as I've already mentioned. He argues from the nature of the gospel and he argues from their own experience to help to drive home this point. So where does confidence come from? Confidence that we know God and are known by God and are secure in his presence. It comes from the belief that our foundation, the foundation of our faith is God's unmerited, undeserved, justifying grace. That's the foundation of it all. And that's what separates biblical Christianity from false forms of Christianity and from false global religions, which all try to give you their list of things you need to do or, or you know, do's and don'ts in order to be made right with the divine. Well, here's how. In verse two, it says, look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, why does he focus in on circumcision? Because false teachers called Judaizers had come into the Christian churches and they, they had told Christians who are trusting in God's grace alone for their salvation, that's not enough. You need to subject yourself once again to the old covenant laws. And they even misunderstood the old covenant because the old covenant was never a law of works, a covenant of works, but it was founded upon God's grace. But they said, you need to go back and minimally you need to avail yourself of the sign and seal of the covenant which was circumcision. Why circumcision? Because it was a physical mark bestowed upon the male sex organ as a reminder of God's promise to bless the nation with fertility, with descendants that would be as many as the stars in the sky, which you can't count, and the sand in the seashore, which you cannot count. So Paul says, if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. Why do you need grace if you can earn it? Why, do you need, why would Jesus need to come and die on a Roman cross and subject himself to persecution and pay for your sins if you can pay for them yourself? Wouldn't make sense. He's of no advantage to you. There's no benefit to him even coming. He says, I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. So if you believe that in order to be made right with God, you have, to, you have to perfectly obey one law or 10 laws. You've agreed that you're under all of them. 
and God will hold you accountable then to perfectly obey every single law that he's ever written. And who in human history has been able to do that save the Lord Jesus Christ? Nobody. So you just shoot yourself on both feet. So we could say this negatively and positively. We'll start with the negative. Said negatively, what we're being taught here, that if you try to perform to secure your standing with God, you must perform flawlessly because that's how high God's standards are. So as soon as you're like, oh, maybe, maybe, maybe I have to be really, really, really dedicated in my Bible reading in order to get God to love me and bless me. You've just subjected yourself to all of his laws. And what you've done, knowingly or unknowingly, is you've said to God, because your grace isn't enough, and I I just refuse to believe that salvation is by grace through faith alone, I'm going to try to earn my way into your presence. And what is God's minimum passing grade? What's the minimum passing grade in school? 50? God's minimum passing grade is 100%. If you fail even once, he will not allow you into his eternal kingdom. Well, how many of us can do that? I mean, even if we perfectly obey the Ten Commandments, there's 603 more just in the Old Covenant. And even if we obey all the do's and don'ts, what if we just forget? What about attitudes? How do you just stop attitudes that might be negative attitudes? Kind of hard to arrest them all in the moment. Inevitably, we're going to sin. So if you perform to secure a standing with God, you're committing yourself to an endless list of do's and don'ts, which you will inevitably fail and condemn yourself. So when he says, if you accept circumcision, and evidently they hadn't yet, they were on the verge because he says, if, you're subjecting yourself to it all. By the way, he's not condemning the physical act of circumcision because if he was, the opposite would be uncircumcision and people would say, well, then I'm justified by my uncircumcision. And he will bring that out further in the text. But if circumcision was to be used as the Judaizers would have it to be used, as a necessary act in order to secure your standing with God, that's the kind of circumcision that he thoroughly and utterly dismisses. So folks, perhaps at times you lack a sense of peace in your walk with the Lord. Maybe you have times you're wondering, am I really saved? How can I know that I'm saved? I wonder if God actually does love me. I wonder if God's grace really is enough. You ever have those thoughts sort of cycle through your mind? Generally, when you've messed up, like, man, how how could God love me? If you want your sense of peace to vanish even quicker, discard grace. Get rid of it. And just rely upon yourself to affirm and secure your own salvation. And you know what's going to happen? Your own failure to live up even to your own expectations is going to continue to condemn you, and it's going to get worse and worse and worse and worse. But if you understand that on the most rudimentary, fundamental, foundational level, God loves you, not because of you, not because of you, but in spite of you. 
and he has exercised grace toward you and mercy toward you, not because you were the best little boy or girl in the classroom, the most consistent in your Bible reading and prayer life, and the most faithful to your spouse. But in his so- out of his sovereign pleasure, he extended grace and mercy to you. That, and that you understand that that is the foundation of your salvation. Then your peace and your assurance grows and blossoms. And you'll never take advantage of it, as we'll learn later in the text. But you'll understand that you can't earn your way into God's good graces. And you can't retain his grace by your own efforts. Because again, you will fail. If you fall into the trap of believing that your salvation is attainable, Christ will be of no advantage to you, the text says. So here's the equation. It's Christ alone or you're on your own. And when you're on your own, you'll never get the 100% that God requires. You'll never get it. I won't get it. The most sanctified among us won't get it. I've preached sermons before and failed to apply them by two o'clock in the afternoon. You ever have those times in your life when you're just really tuned into God, you're convicted, you're passionate, you're like, never again, Lord. And then a day later, oh, brother. (laughs) It happens to all of us because we can't even measure up to our own expectations. So what is true belief? True belief. I'll tell you what it's not. There's a a lot of false views of true belief, true faith, So one would be, well, it's just intellectual assent. So, oh yeah, I believe that Jesus died on the cross for my sins and I know that salvation is by grace through faith alone. They just believe it between their ears, but they've never actually appropriated it. They've never assented to it. They've never rested in it. This is where belief becomes faith, when you're actually trusting, resting on the shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, on his propitiatory work, on his atonement, on his sacrifice for you. You're resting in it like you're resting in a chair to hold you up. That's faith, not just, oh, I believe it. Does the Bible not say even the demons believe? They know the truth because some of them witnessed it. But they're not trusting in it. You could have a professor of religion that affirms the historical Christ believes in certain historical events, but has never been transformed by it. So intellectual assent is necessary, but it's not enough. And then there's the Jesus 2.0 error, where it's like, oh, I believe in Jesus. Oh, you do? Yeah, I believe in Jesus. Who is Jesus to you? Well, he's certainly not God. He was just a very good moral individual that lived a long time ago. Or Jesus isn't a historical figure. He's just a compilation of various rabbis and historical gurus that sort of taught truth. Or Jesus wasn't virgin born. Well, I'm sorry, but that's not the same Jesus that we're talking about. It's like you fast forward a thousand years ago and someone hears the name Aaron Rock and they're like, oh, I I know who Aaron Rock was. He was a five foot two redheaded guy that was 450 pounds that was five years old in 2022. You know, it's like, no, that's the wrong guy. You can't just make Jesus into your own image. Jesus has to be defined according to how the Bible defines him. So you have to be believing in the right Jesus. And then you have to believe in Jesus alone. This is really critical. 
During the Reformation, this was one thing the reformers had to add to their preaching. They'd say, it wasn't, oh, I believe in Jesus and faith and grace. They like, they had to add the word sola. I believe in sola scriptura, the Bible alone. Sola Christus, Christ alone. And the reason for that was because people, if they didn't add the word alone, they would add a little plus sign after it. Oh, I believe that you have to trust in Jesus for your salvation. Plus works of the law, <laughs> practicing the liturgy, whatever it might be, participation in the sacraments. No, no, no. It's Christ alone, grace alone, faith alone. Really, really important. So the substance of your belief has to be accurate and real and personal. So if you're trying to perform your way into God's good graces, you are obliging yourself to all of God's laws. And what will that lead to? Exhaustion. Exhaustion and impossibility and depression. This is the nature of false religion. You're never good enough. Did you know that in Orthodox Islam, you can obey virtually all of Quranic laws and rules, actually get to heaven, and at any point in history, God can just flick you out because he doesn't want you there anymore. So even if you measure up, you're still not secure. Well, in the Bible, the reason why we can have absolute assurance in our salvation is because our salvation has absolutely nothing to do with us. Really important for us to understand. So when we question our salvation, well, we should question if we're believing in the wrong Jesus (laughs) or we're not believing at all, or our lives aren't being transformed but we should never question the sufficiency of Christ's work for us. Trying is very difficult, but grace is free. And that's what makes it amazing. So in prayer and in our spiritual lives, what are we in pursuit of? Are we just sort of let go and let God sit back and do nothing? No, we are in pursuit of his presence. We want his presence to be manifested in our lives. We want people to come to know Christ through our efforts. We wanna serve the purposes of his kingdom. We want to obey him because we love him. We want to be diligent in service because we love him, just like we do in a good and healthy marriage. We serve the other, not to retain that person's love, but to express it and manifest it. And while God is everywhere present, he does manifest his presence in an extra special way when we receive it through faith. So let's say this positively now. Here's how we'd say it positively. The perfection of Christ is sufficient to... to perfect you. The perfection of Christ is sufficient to perfect you. There's a divine transaction that takes place, a divine e-transfer, a legal forensic act that takes place in our salvation and that the perfection, the identity the riches of Christ, which are rightfully and solely his, are by grace credited to you. 
So your salvation is not based upon the payments you've made, the deeds you've committed, or the efforts you've expended. But it's everything about Christ that becomes everything to you, becomes your everything. Paul goes on to say in verse 4, if you succumb to the law, you are severed from Christ. You who would be justified by the law, you have fallen away from grace. You can't have one and the other at the same time. You can't be trusting in works of a law and trusting in works of, and trusting in the grace of God. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. That is the full perfection of our faith in the eternal kingdom. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything. So you can't say, well, I'm uncircumcised so that I'm right with God. No, it's neither of them is what makes you right with God. But only faith working through love. Alan Cole in his commentary on Galatians says that when Paul talks here about having fallen away from grace, it means to have fallen out of the realm of grace. So this is likely an experiential observation rather than a statement of their position before God in that you can be a bona fide, born-again, blood-bought believer who's trusting in Christ alone for your salvation. But as you're progressing, you start to listen to falsehood and you start to waver and you start to live experientially as if you're under the law again. This is called legalism. This is the kind of church I grew up in, by the way, where you were taught very explicitly, salvation is by grace, through faith, alone, in the Lord Jesus Christ. You didn't merit it. You can't earn it. And then the second part of the sermon is the 550 church rules you had to obey in order to be considered a good little Christian boy. And you're like, okay, this, this is weird. I'm being pulled in two directions. Which is it? Which is it? So at this point, I do not believe that Paul is saying, well, you have fallen away from salvation, but experientially, attitudinally, and Cole goes on to say, quote, so they have in fact left the region where grace is operative. Operative, that's an interesting word. God gives us grace for a purpose. Grace has the capacity to accomplish something, to operate in our lives in a certain way. And what is the goal of God's grace? Why did God give us grace? Just so we can say we have it? Now, grace is supposed to operate in us. It drives us, for example, to worship him, to ascribe worth to him, to acknowledge that our salvation is purely of him. This is that vertical worship. It's not, Lord, I'm here in church rocking away and singing and listening because I hope you still love me. It's you are so gracious and I want you to know you're gracious and I want you to know I appreciate it and I want to exalt your name. It, it, it motivates us to point others to his grace as we, listen to the text, eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. There's an eagerness. When you, when you experience grace and understand grace, your Christian life becomes an eager life. It's an excitable life. It's filled with joy. It's filled with perspective. 
So we want grace to operate in us, to change us, to sanctify us, but also so that we can be useful for God's redemptive purposes in this world. So what counts? Well, verse six clearly tells us it's not the law. It's neither circumcision or uncircumcision. It's not obeying the law or disobeying the law. It's not one law or another law. If we perform for God, we just tire ourselves out. But true faith is manifested in love. In fact, faith manifested in love is true faith. So faith has an object attached to it. One of the objects is love for God, but the other object is love for your fellow man. So it's like, well, how do I know I have true faith? Because I love other people in a way that's not natural to me. It's induced in me by God. We have faith and hope. We trust in Christ alone. We denounce works-oriented salvation. By the way, if you are a doer, one of those people that loves to do, to be busy, to be active, to serve, to, to you know, get involved in the fray and accomplish something, this will be especially challenging to you. Because if you're a doer, you can easily use the strength that God has given you to accomplish much to fall into the trap of just performing for God. Likewise, if you're self-righteous, you're, you're judgmental towards other people, you, you see the flaws in other people, usually that's a reflection of your own perfectionism, the their own rules that you foisted upon yourself. And that can lead to fearfulness. Because while you expect much of others, you know deep down of your own failures. And so you become terrified as to whether or not you're still a child of God. So each of us has, you know, our own weaknesses. You want to do stuff for the Lord, but that can work against you. You want to be righteous, but when you become self-righteous, that's a problem. All of us, regardless of our personality or our stories, need to increasingly trust in and surrender ourselves once again to God's grace. And in this process, folks, we need to look out for false teachers because many will come in the present and in the future that will try to convince you otherwise. Paul says to the Galatian church, you were running well. I mean, you guys had it going on. You understood the truth. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? Who tripped you up, in other words? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. And then he uses the illustration, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. When my wife makes bread, she adds just a little bit of yeast and the buns just puff right up. Just these little tiny specks, but you put them in there and they accomplish some amazing things. In the same way, a little falsehood, a little lie left to take root grows to become a big lie. Does it not? So he says, I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view and the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. Paul didn't even know who the, their wormwood was, who the, who the one whispering lies in their ears was. But whoever he is, he says, he'll bear the penalty and I have confidence that you'll be righted, that you'll be get, back, get back on track. But if I, brothers still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? So Paul was being persecuted, 
not so much by pagans. Every once in a while, he'd get into a tiff with some pagan, but mostly Paul was being persecuted by Judaizers, those that would have him resurrender himself. You're like, well, how's that possible? He wasn't really even ministering in Israel. He was ministering in the Gentile world because the Jewish diaspora had spread all around the Mediterranean basin. And when Paul was ministering in all these places, he often would build some of his initial relationships with Jews who were living in Gentile territory. And so many of the early Christians in these churches, while they were Gentile in the cities they were in, had Jewish background. So in these towns, he'd, he'd go to synagogues and try to preach, and he'd get into these fights with, with the Jewish Pharisees that believed that salvation was essentially by works of the law. And he was persecuted for it. So he's like, if he was, of course, circumcised because he was a Jew previously, but he's like, I'm not getting into fights with these people because I'm circumcised. That's not what we're fighting about or works of the law. It's because there's a different gospel being preached here. Grace versus works. In that case, he goes on to say, the offense of the cross has been removed. Now, if you don't like crass language, take both of your fingers and put them into your ears right now. Because there are some rated R passages in the Bible. And here's one of them. I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. You know what that means? I wish they would take a knife and cut off their penises and their testicles. Just so you're clear on that. That's what he's saying. If you're going to circumcise yourself, just take it all off. If you think that's impressive to God to remove the foreskin, just keep cutting away. Never thought you'd hear that in church, did you? Well, we preach the whole truth here. And I must admit, I do relish it a little bit. <laughs> it, it, drives, it drives the point home, does it not? And this aligns, this analogy of circumcision and castration, this aligns with his previous statement. If you're going to obey one ounce of a law, you've got to obey it all, or you're not right with God. So just, just keep going. Take your legs off. Take your arms off. Just keep cutting away. So this is, Paul is, is, is pretty, shall we say, judgmental here in a biblical way. And so we must also be bold and unashamed and clear-minded when it comes to the gospel. So we know falsehood when it pops up. Why, why let false teachers off the hook? Why do people let false teachers off the hook? I've talked to Christians who are like, yeah, there's some false teaching being taught in my church, but we still just go. <laughs> well, you don't leave the first day, you address it. But false teaching that's been going on for years? Why? Well, we like the preacher, <laughs> okay? Well, uh, you know, he speaks our lingo. We like his jokes. He's not judgmental, whatever it might be. Well, I listened to this guy on the radio and yeah, he's got some falsehood, but he's entertaining. Really? You know what Paul would say about such a man? Well, he says he'll bear the penalty, whoever he is. So we, we cannot allow for false teaching. This is our generation, by the way. And if we get it wrong, we're going to pass on a lot of falsehood to the next. 
We cannot allow false teaching when it comes to the fundamentals of the faith. And what sense does it make to be down on immorality to speak out against, let's say, the radical sex agenda in culture, but not to speak out against falsehood when it comes to the gospel? It makes no sense. We speak out against both. It also says, it also reminds us here when it says you were running well, what's running? It's, it's a walking word, right? It's like when I, and we talk about our walk with Christ, we worship Christ, we walk with Christ, we work for Christ. That's a term that refers to our progress in sanctification and Christ likeness. Well, as soon as false teaching crept in, they stopped running well. You were, past tense, running well. So the, what you believe affects your spiritual journey. There's no separation of the two. What you believe affects your direction. It affects your walk with Christ. So if you're not obeying the truth, it's not just merely a cerebral problem, an intellectual problem, a belief problem. It's a practical problem as well. Because all truth has application attached to it. It leads somewhere. It, It changes the way you think, you act, you feel, you speak, what you do, how you spend how you interact. So how much false teaching can we handle? A little leaven leavens the whole lump. None. We live kind of out Amherstburg, Harrow area, and it's fish fly season. The girls of our family love fish fly season. Fish flies in your hair, fish flies in your salad as you're eating on the porch, right? How many fish flies, by the way, do you generally tolerate in your food? I was at a restaurant in the East End years ago and there's a fish fly in my Caesar salad. I didn't keep eating. I removed the fish fly. I then kept eating afterwards. (laughs) How many insects do you allow in your food? How much excrement do you allow in your food? Zero. I was in China once. They brought up this big platter and on the side was about a three-inch green worm. And I thought maybe this is like parsley. I don't know. So I asked my translators, like, that's not supposed to be there. And they took the food away. You don't, you don't permit gross things, corruption in what you eat. Why would, we, why would we accept an ounce of false doctrine in our church? Especially that which literally can lead people away from the faith. Now here's the clear point of application, the true gospel properly understood. You get the gospel down. And what that does is when you understand the true gospel, that sinks your mission to Christ's mission. So when you understand what he's done, grace, love, unmerited favor, then when he says, Aaron, I want you to love others as you love yourself. I'm thinking, what is love? Ah, I know what love is. It's unmerited favor. It's grace. It's mercy. My mission then is synced up with Christ's, and I use my freedom, my freedom from slavery to love others. This is what he, where he's going with this in verse 13, very practical. For you were called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. You know, those people that are like, well, I'm free, so now I can do what I want. Oh, no, you can't do that. That's grace that is not operative in your life. When grace is operative in your life, guess what? You'll be more gracious. You'll be more loving. You'll be more forgiving. You won't harbor bitterness and resentment because Christ has forgiven you. 
Do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. Don't misunderstand the object of grace. Grace and freedom doesn't give you liberty to act however you want. But through love, serve one another. So when we understand grace and get the gospel right, now it's like, aha, I know now what it means to forgive my spouse. Now I know what it means to forgive my enemy. Now I know what it means to exercise love towards my neighbor who threw glass in my pool or stole my lawnmower or whatever it might be. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, fulfilled. It means it comes to a climax in, it's expressed in. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Opposite is then true too. If you bite and devour one another, watch out that you're not consumed by one another. So getting the gospel right is not just about your personal sense of security. It's also about your mission. To be on mission with Christ. To go into the world and declare the love of God through Christ, but also to live lovingly. This is why Christians make better lovers because we truly understand what love is. We've received and accepted and we're trusting in the love of Christ. Christians can have better marriages. Christians can have better relationships because every relationship requires love. And we get it because it's not sourced in us. It's sourced in God. So the place for works, for effort, love, forgiveness, kindness, service, isn't fueled from within. It's fueled from without. It's God's love given to us, dispensed to us. When received by faith, we then dispense it to others. And that is God's love being manifested through us into a broken world. So we're conduits. We're image bearers of God's love. We are reflectors of God's love. It doesn't come from us. It comes from God to us, through us, and out to a lost and dying world. So folks, this is the beauty of the gospel. The gospel changes us, and then it allows us to change the way we interact with others. The gospel has an object attached to it. Obviously, ultimately, the glory of God but also a world that benefits as we preach and proclaim and live lovingly. And love, by the way, must be defined by Christ. It's loving to confront sin, just as it's loving to forgive. It's loving to offer a word of rebuke, just as it's loving to serve the other. It's loving to speak the truth, just as at times it's loving to be Silent. So love is not how, however you define it. Love must also be defined by the one who loves us perfectly. Well, let's pray that the Lord would impress this, these lessons upon our minds and motivate and encourage us to live in light of it. 